This is the Ethics Lab Podcast, exploring the path from better knowledge to practical results in healthcare ethics. The um, different avenues to go down or to explore in order to find some of those connections seem to be um, of a different nature than in maybe a larger community where people are more isolated or where your care team members may not know anything about the person's life outside of their experience in the hospital. According to the United States Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, more than 46 million, or 15% of all Americans, live in rural areas. And as more attention is given to meeting the health needs of this population, A significant gap in health between rural and urban Americans has emerged. Rural Americans are more likely to die from heart disease, cancer, unintentional injury, chronic respiratory disease, and stroke than their urban counterparts. Unintentional injury deaths are approximately 50% higher in rural areas, partly due to greater risk of death from motor vehicle crashes and opioid overdoses. These challenges underscore the important role that critical access hospitals play in helping to address these disparities. But what are the ethical considerations that should be looked at when caring for rural communities? In this episode, our guests offer their perspective and expertise on this important topic. Our guests in this episode include Mary Holman, Southwest Division Vice President of Theology and Ethics for Common Spirit Health, Leslie Kunal, Midwest Division Vice President of Theology and Ethics for Common Spirit Health, and Jason Lessandrini, Assistant Vice President, Ethics, Advanced Care Planning, and Spiritual Health at Wellstar Health System. My name is Kevin Murphy, and this is Ethics Lab. Leslie, let's start with you. What is different in rural health care? The ethics challenges within a critical access hospital setting, for example, in a rural healthcare setting, are apples to apples in terms of what we would see in any community, um, how people are making decisions and weighing benefits and burdens of what those decisions are. Um, questions about family dynamics. You know, everyone has a family and every family has a dynamic. So the family dynamics questions are there. Um, conversations and ways of getting information are definitely changing and as much as in rural America as it is anywhere else people google search their diagnosis and diagnose themselves based on what they find or their friends neighbors had on Facebook or whatever that is and I think some of that is is very similar I think some of it is apples to oranges Um, you talk about privacy issues in a very different way in a large urban area than you do in a small community Um, Privacy in a small community is a difficult thing because people know each other for good or bad. People know everyone's history for good or for bad. And I think for uh, providers and for care team members having to be able to um, navigate some of those pre-existing relationships that in larger settings we would say, wow, this is a boundary crossing moment. You can't care for this person in a smaller community. You just figure out how, how to do it and bring some neutrality to it because there isn't maybe another provider or that is the nurse on today, um, even though she's now your 
ex-husband's sister or whatever the case might be. Those kinds of things are just sort of a how we look at it differently. But I think sometimes they're an apples to, you know, baseball's perspective in that they're very, very different experiences. And I'm thinking uh, specifically of questions our, com- uh, com- our ethics committees were having related to capacity assessment. Capacity assessment is always a great ethics question everywhere. But in our larger communities, our larger hospitals, there's always the debate about who should be responsible for assessing capacity of a patient. Should it be only through a site consult? Should it only be this particular attending versus this consultant? And when we brought that conversation up in our regional healthcare ethics committee, there was sort of this silence around the table and the conversation says well of course the physician or provider on call assesses capacity because there's nobody else to do that and so I think in some ways there is a realistic or a not realistic is probably not the right word there's more of a organic uh, way of addressing what in larger settings tends to tend to be very complex and very um, complicated ethics navigations that we do, even from that organizational place, whereas they're just simply different in our, in our critical access hospitals or our rural settings. Mary, let's bring you into the conversation. What are the issues that you are seeing? If you're in a critical access hospital, you're 25 beds or less, so you don't have a ton of staff. And so in some ways, people are managing to the resources that they have. So resource allocation happens all the time in a wholly different way, even if, let's say, you're a 70-bed hospital that's in a rural community, or you might be a 300-bed, but the whole county or the surrounding counties are all considered rural. And and so what I would what I've seen in in what I've published on is that the frequency is actually when there's the disagreements of oh this person says that they don't want to start dialysis well starting dialysis means they're going to travel two hours because there's no outpatient dialysis in their community so that's when ethics gets consulted and or um, you know again somebody wants to go back I remember getting an a request can we call APS um, because this old farmer doesn't want to have surgery and it was calving season. Like he had to get back to, to birth cows, right? Like th- that was his income. That was the the sustainability of what he could pass on. And he's like, I got two legs. I'll just lean on the other one more. And, and, and so I think that things get managed in a different way. Jason, do you have any examples that illustrate similarities or differences between rural and urban settings? So I appreciate Mary and, and Leslie's comments, but I'm going to be the maybe the antagonist uh, uh, for, for just a minute. So the data we have doesn't bear that out, doesn't bear at least from the clinical ethics side that these issues are drastically that different for us. They're, to, to Leslie's point, they're maybe a different flavor, and and we have some data where we look at you know what what types of ethics issues arise in our rural settings versus versus more urban setting and we we don't drastically see differences in fact um, may, may maybe maybe that's a result of 
um, how we train or educate, right? And and that could be our own fault. And so it it drives similarities, right? So we go down and we're teaching about surrogate decision making in a rural setting, and we teach the exact same lecture in a you know in an urban setting. And so maybe that's our fault. Maybe we should be thinking about these contexts a little different. So the difference is is that oftentimes in urban settings, we are more cognizant potentially to the org ethics issues that might be occurring. And it's sort of to Leslie's point, it's like, well, that's kind of how they do it. It's sort of the way it works. But but we don't see that as a broader organizational ethics problem that we need to adjust or change as a system. Mary, how about you? You know, having worked in both community hospitals and academic hospitals, um, there's a specialist for everything in academic hospitals. And sometimes we still set that up as our precedent that um, we have a child life specialist and we have a chaplain and we have an ethicist and we have an attending and we have a resident. That's a lot of care team members. And so you're able to divvy up um, care for that patient. And in a critical access hospital, the chief nursing officer is the chief quality officer, and they're the administrator on call. And uh, they also uh, are, are going to be delivering meals tonight because someone needs to call out. Like That's just, there's a scrappiness that's absent. What cultural considerations are at play in a rural setting that might make the response to ethical issues different? You know, surrogate decision-making is a great example. So as we're thinking about who's the appropriate surrogate from an ethics perspective, we're obviously asking, yes, what does the law say? But we're mostly saying, who can be the voice of this patient? Who knows this person best that can tell us and help make decisions because the patient can't be involved? And I think that when in some communities, and it would not be the same for every person in every community or every community compared. But sometimes there's not the struggle of, well, how do we find out who a surrogate is going to be? Who do we ask? Because everybody kind of knows, well, this is the person that's the friend or they've lived together forever. Or here's here's the person I would go to if I'd really want to say, what do you think this person would tell me? And so for some things, it just sort of doesn't result, for example, in an ethics consultation because it's easier to figure the ways through. Are there ethics dilemmas? Sure. Are there questions about is the person um, actually representing that patient's wishes or preferences or their own? Absolutely. Um, but the the kinds of conversations, I think, or the, the maybe the... Um, different avenues to go down or to explore in order to find some of those connections seem to be um, of a different nature than in maybe a larger community where people are more isolated or where your care team members may not know anything about the person's life outside of their experience in the hospital. Jason, how about you? I've had conversations. Uh, Mary was at one of these presentations when when this conversation came up <clears throat> about ethics issues that happen in rural settings and the probability that they're going to have uh, an ethics committee with any type of, I'll say the, the, the bad word, expertise on the committee um, or um, have access to resources, an ethics consultant or someone, it may be low, you know, depending on its potential affiliation or if it stands independent. And and the argument I kept making um, in that presentation that conference which you know people kept getting angry with me about was yeah but if if you have it they do they will call you 
Like if you have a resource, they want help. It's not that they don't want help. It's just they have, to Leslie's point, they've made do with what they've had. And if they do get access to help, they will seek it out, right? um, You know, there's a lot of literature that's coming out where there's some papers that have been recently published about our our ethicists supply sensitive care, right? Is 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 that what ethics consults are? That when you put a resource there, of course, it drives the volume up. And when I, what I kept arguing was, I actually think it's, no, there's a demand or a need that's being unmet, and now you have a resource to actually meet the need. But when you when you provide a resource to them, I think the, the, the response I've had is, man, this would have been nice 10 years ago, or this would have been nice three years ago. We've been having these issues all along. I would have really loved to be able to talk through with someone instead of having to be the ethicist, the CNO, the quality officer, the the night food server, and you know that I think there's value that can be added to help folks in a rural setting think through some of these things. What other stories or aha moments do you have? I did a lot of work in one of our places with um, Indian Health Services. And and so what was striking for me is that um, in Oklahoma, uh, Chickasaw Nation was one of the wealthiest, I think it is the wealthiest nation, and so had a really great medical center. And um, where I was had a, a good hospital in that same community. The um, the physicians were paid differently at, at, in, at the Indian Health Clinic, but their salaries were both Indian Health Services salaries and um, underwritten by the foundation of the um, First Nations. And what was interesting is is reflecting on that's not the case for so many of our First Nations folks. And so it led me to really start investigating and understanding um, ruralness and poverty and disparity within First Nations that are in those rural communities. And and so at the time, I was doing um, a, a bunch of work with the Oklahoma City County Health Department on fetal and infant mortality and looking at like how often moms would get referred to maternal fetal medicine specialists, especially if they had a high-risk pregnancy, and and talk about an area where it just if 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 you were native, if you were poor, if you were rural, the you were referred to MFMs and then you were com- totally listed as non-compliant. So now these women would carry this shadow of non-compliance for the duration of their pregnancy. They were screened at higher rates for substance misuse. Um, Oklahoma had a very narrow interpretation of um, drug-endangered newborns. And and so it was not unknown for, for babies to be referred to CPS, you know, like as soon as they were delivered. Because um, on some screen that a mom didn't even know that she did, they uh, screened positive, which screened, I'm just going to be really clear, screened positive um, for a substance. Mom wasn't counseled about that. Mom wasn't helped with that. And and that's true for a lot of things, just how how we think about um, uh, protecting our babies. And so um, what struck me is, is that we we as a we as a healthcare system were actually contributing to poor birth outcomes. I mean, what we were saying is, if you're poor, if you're um, black or brown, if you're native, if you're rural, um, 
we're going to tell you you need prenatal care, but then we're going to we're we're going to judge you six ways to Sunday, um, and and we're not going to help get you the services that you need. I had a mom once who lived in a rural community. Um, she delivered at a community hospital in the city, and. And the case manager every day was marking her as being late for coming in to see, like the exact time she was walking in and walking out from the the um, the NICU to visit her baby. So I get consulted, and and they're like, "Look, we just don't. We really want to make a referral to CPS. This mom is showing that she's not um, able to be a good decision maker for this baby." And it was like. Part of it, what what decisions need to be made about a NICU? Like th- these are clinical decisions that need to be made. The baby's stable, the mom's not objecting to heel sticks or medication. You know, she's holding the baby when she's here. She's fearful because who's not fearful about holding the little bitty preemie baby, right? They they break when you like they're so small. And um, this amazing social work, this other social worker from another area was watching her one day and said something about her shoes because the, the, um, she was wearing tennis shoes and the, the, the leather was separating from the rubber on the bottom of the shoe. And, and they said, what, what, do you step in something? And she said, oh, it's from all the walking. And they said, what do you mean all the walking? She, she was walking over 15 miles each way from where she was staying with somebody else where she could afford to stay in a trailer and literally walking next to the interstate every day, twice a day to see her kid. Leslie, any other aha moments for you? One of our hospital presidents in one of our our critical access hospitals made such a great comment to me in conversation. And he said, you know, I I absolutely agree with all these things that are happening. I think going through the exercises to do the practice for preparing for triage questions and the conversations about scarcity and resource allocation are going to be important ones. He said, but I think we're really prepared for these in general because they're conversations we have with patients all the time. What this particular president was able to say is we got this. We got this because we do this. We do this a lot when patients are deciding, I'd rather stay home. I realize it's probably going to be more life-threatening to me, but there's not really a great chance of whatever's going to happen if I travel and my family can be with me here um, or whatever the cases might be. And so I think that there's sort of for the aha moment in that for me was to really shift and recognize the kind of thinking and the, the kind of conversations that happen. Jason, are there any key stories that come to mind for you? I remember a case, this is uh, probably 12 to 15 years ago, um, of a man who had came in who was in the ICU, and um, he was getting labeled all in the chart. And, and I don't know if this is unique to him about rule, but it, it definitely, his uh, living situation played where he resided, li- played into it. So he lived in a trailer, uh, definitely in a very, very rural community uh, in Georgia, it's a long time ago. And um, he had a tree on his property that was dead. And he didn't cut it down. He just sort of left it be. And the tree ended up falling and um, crushing his trailer. But he was sleeping and was on BiPAP when he, when it happened. And it crushed his BiPAP machine. So he, he didn't go get a new BiPAP machine because he couldn't afford it. Um, and he became hypoxic and, you know, a couple days later and, and ends up, 
getting transferred to a <clears throat> larger inner city hospital. And, and I remember just hearing the way the residents talked about like, well, why wouldn't he just get it fixed? Like, it, it's not that complicated. And, uh, you know, things like, you know, they would also say things like, it was really fascinating that they would say things like, well, where is his family? And, and does he have them? And, you know, you know I, I remember this on rounds, I would say, well, yeah, he has family. I mean, it's clearly, it's all in the chart. Like, um, you know, but if he lives three or four hours away, them coming to see him is not as easy as you driving from your apartment one mile down the road to come to, to work today. It, it's a feat, you know, to Mary's point about walking 15 miles, like, even driving, even if you have a vehicle, that assumes you do. But, you know, his family did. But even driving 15, you know, the, the, the three hours to get there. And I just remember how sort of insensitive, I guess, in a way that the care providers had been, but but didn't realize it. Like, that was the the key. And I think that's often what we don't acknowledge. You know, you put this guy's noncompliant or he doesn't wear his BiPAP at night. The reason he doesn't wear his BiPAP at night is because a tree crushed it. He doesn't have it. So, of course, he's not going to wear it. You know, and there's this conversation, I remember this very vividly, ensued about could we go on, e- could he go on eBay and find one on eBay, right? And, um, and, and I said, again, you're assuming he's got the money to go on eBay to do it. Leslie, what do you think is important as you hear these stories? I think the one thing that I would also add to that in terms of agricultural workers and farming in the different areas, there's also a great strength and a great um, legacy and a great um, a, a, a career field and, and a lot of people that are working in the industry that work in farming that, that have these um, experiences where, like many of us, called to any of our careers, it's something that they couldn't do any differently because it's in their blood, right? It's, it's fulfilling, it's um, a, a stewards of the earth component. And I, I definitely think it's important to recognize that story and that narrative in rural healthcare and in rural experience as well. Um, and I think it probably is um, a, a unique part of the strength and perseverance that we see and a great part of, of the um, maybe the, the community bonding that happens. And, and also, I think it, it, like in any kind of circumstance, the things that influences any individual's decision-making um, have multiple factors. It's not just around agriculture. There's, there's arts and there's intellectual endeavors. And, and if we only um, portray rural health care as farming the value of, of some of the things. I, I think I definitely want us to be careful that we're not stereotyping the the people who live in our rural communities as only a particular um, narrow, narrow um, portrait. Mary, we've heard some difficult or challenging stories of gaps in our systems or our perceptions. What do you think is going well? What gives you hope? There's um there's two that I can think of. Well, one is a colleague, Tom Harder. He's at Gunderson, um, which is in the Lacrosse area of Wisconsin, and he has a major outreach activity with the Amish. 
um, in his uh, region. And and so talk about just a group that is historically misunderstood and rural and um, exposed to um, occupational hazards dealing with farming and, you know, huge draft horses, things like that. And and so Tom's done a lot of work with the, um, the Rural Healthcare Network in Wisconsin. And then we've incorporated them. We developed the bioethics network of the upper Midwest, intentionally trying to reach out to those kinds of groups to say, how can ethics be available in those rural communities and even in urban communities that might not have a full-time ethicist. Appreciation to our guests today for their advice and reflections. As always, appreciation to our listeners as well. Thanks, everyone. My name is Kevin Murphy, and this is Ethics Lab. you have enjoyed this edition of the Ethics Lab podcast, exploring the path from better knowledge to practical results in healthcare ethics. Ethics Lab was created by Kevin Murphy and Russell Keithline. Thanks for listening. Join us again.